diligent to present yourself approved by God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. rightly divide the word of truth. Friends, welcome to Messiah in Life. Today we're going to continue the introduction to the Torah series by looking at interpretive levels of Torah study. When we approach a biblical text, whether we know it or not, we're interpreting that text. What it means to us personally, communally, culturally, religiously, and how we approach a text is informed by our personal point of view, what we've been taught, what we've heard, and whatever scholarly endeavors we might have undertaken. Now, we can't dismiss that entirely, but there are times when we need to be more critical in our method of interpretation. And the Apostle Paul is instructing us that we must be diligent in our study and consideration of Scripture to rightly handle it. And that means to come to a proper and correct conclusion in order to walk worthily before the Lord. So we need to consider context, history, language, and so on in order to come to a conclusion that helps us realize the purpose of the revelation that the authors are giving to us. So being that this is a talk about the introduction to the Torah, rather than considering the classical Christian hermeneutical approach to the study of Scripture, we'll be examining ever so briefly a traditional Jewish approach to Torah study. In Sifri Deuteronomy uh, or Devarim 206, we read this, My teaching shall drop as the rain. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 2. Even, it continues, as rain falling on various trees gives to each a special savor in keeping with its species, to the vine the savor of grapes, to the olive tree the savor of olives, to the fig tree the savor of figs, So the words of Torah are one, yet within them are Scripture, Mishnah, Halacha, Agada. Scripture has built within it verses of faith, of law, of instruction, and historical accounts of different individuals. Rabbi Stephen Weiland explains the difference between Halacha and Agada. He writes, Halacha is Jewish law. Agada is everything else all of the non-legal teachings of Judaism. Halakha includes rules and directions for righteous living. Agada is the language of faith, hope, and comfort. Halakha literally means the way. Judaism is a behavioristic religion. Jewish is as Jewish does. Halakha teaches a Jew the way to live, the way of righteousness by which a person, like Father Abraham, can walk before God and be perfect. Agada literally means the telling. Agada is Judaism's, Judaism as story, as parable, and legend. We find that echoed within the text of the Gospels as well. He continues, Underlying every act of obedience to the sacred law is the faith that there is a God who commands the law, who is pleased with our obedience, and who grants reward for righteousness. As the tradition teaches, there is no commandment unless there is one who commands. The Agata teaches faith in God. Judaism is not, for the most part, a religion of systematic theology. 
the Agata provides in piecemeal fashion the theological underpinnings of the Jewish way of life. As Rabbi Weiland explains, Agata presents us with the telling of Jewish life, the actions of Jews based upon their obedience or disobedience to the Torah of the Lord, and from this, we can construct a basic Jewish theology. Halacha differs from Agata in that it addresses the way of understanding and living the mitzvot, the commands of the Lord. And this we can understand on three levels. Mitzvah is the command of the Lord. Halacha is specific laws and rules about the command of the Lord and how to walk them out. Minhag is a tradition or a custom that usually differs from one community to the next as to how a command of the Lord is observed. So from the Torah, as well as the writings and the prophets, Judaism receives Midrash, Gemara, Halacha, Agada. It, it's these writings, I might add, that informs the conclusions that Jews reach when studying the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, or the Old Testament. Even with regard to who the person of Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, is. So let's consider in greater depth an interpretive method of, uh, of approaching sacred texts found in Jewish thought which has gained popularity in Messianic Judaism. This method of biblical interpretation is called pardes, which literally means orchard and is related to our English word paradise. The word of the Lord is amazing because it does reveal paradise. It does reveal how we are enter therein by Messiah Yeshua. And in it, he speaks to us in a variety of ways, with prophetic language, poetic language, literal, uh, concrete language, and even allegorical language. Yet through each of these separate avenues, he reveals his will to us, his nature, his promise to be among us, as well as how we can be reconciled to him. There is a distinct difference between the methodology used by the church and the traditional Jewish community. We can see evidence of this in the quotation of Jerome, an early church father. He writes, The Jews insist upon a literal interpretation of the scripture based on 13 laws, but we know that the spiritual interpretation is far superior. If we examine the practices of modern Judaism and the modern church, we find this tendency has largely been reversed, not entirely, but pretty close. As I quoted earlier, the Apostle Paul writes, be diligent to present yourself approved by God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul is making reference to how we approach and handle scripture. As Jerome referenced, there were rules for interpreting scripture based upon the teachings of Rabbi Hillel, the grandfather of Paul's teacher Gamliel, and later upon the 13 rules of Rabbi Ishmael. Paul certainly would have known some or all of the rules attributed to Hillel and Ishmael, and he might have even applied them in his own study of Scripture. Still, there are other approaches that were not formalized until the Middle Ages. They did exist in those earlier centuries, the 2nd and the 4th centuries. So we're going to look now at a basic overview of 
that methodology called pardes. The P sound, the pay sound, is pshat, meaning literal or simple. It's the simple meaning of the text. The R sound, or the rosh, remez, means hint. The dalit sound, the D sound, means drosh, and that's a searching. While the samic, or the S sound, sod, means hidden or secret. It's important to note that according to the Talmud, a verse of scripture cannot depart from its literal meaning, which means that no matter what other interpretive methods are applied to a text, the text itself never loses its meaning in the context in which it's found. However, there are texts in scripture where the text does not have a literal meaning. In this case, the rabbis have concluded that the Lord himself is directing the reader to a deeper message or meaning, a hint of a greater revelation that is to follow. Pardes helps to reveal the dimensions that are within scripture. So we'll now look at each of these four levels with a little bit more amplification. Peshat. This, again, is the literal, the simple interpretation of the text. The text as it's found in the verse, in the paragraph, in the book, and so on. The simple meaning. Within the Peshat method, there are several levels of interpretation, grammar, language, compositional syntax, history, culture, geography, even uh, common sense. We can apply what we might call the five W's when using Peshat, the simple interpretive method. Who, what, where, when, and why. What is being said in the text? Just as Messiah is the cornerstone of our faith, Peshat, the simple meaning, is the cornerstone for accurate understanding of Scripture. So, as I mentioned previously, some scriptures do not have a literal, simple meaning as we might understand it. And in these cases, the language may be figurative or metaphorical, allegorical. But here are some very simple rules for determining if a verse is figurative. When an inanimate object is used to describe a living being, that statement is figurative. And you can find an example of that in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. When life and action are attributed to an inanimate object, the statement is figurative. An exact example would be Zechariah 5, verses 1 through 3. When an expression is out of character with what is being described, the statement is figurative. And you can find an example of that in Psalm 17 and verse 8. So when we discard the Peshat, the simple meaning of a verse, we lose any real chance of accurately understanding the scripture in context. And we are no longer objectively deriving meaning for the, from the verse, which would be exegesis, but now we are subjectively reading meaning into the, the verse of scripture, eisegesis. So we have to be mindful of the warning from the Talmud that no scripture can be removed from its literal meaning. And then we move to remez. Remez. The hint. 
This is the implied meaning of a text. When the Ramez level of interpretation is used by the reader, it's extracting principle or truth from scriptures that are hinted at by the Peshat meaning of the text, but not explicitly stated. So two examples of this. One can be found in in Exodus 21, verses 26 and 27, when we're thinking of Lex Talionis, the, the law of Talion. And this is our need to make re- uh, reparations for damages, uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and so on. But we can extrapolate from that that we need to make reparations for other parts of the body as well from that instruction. If we damage someone's hand, what is the value of a hand, and so on and so forth. Proverbs 20 and verse 10, although the peshat, the simple meaning, applies to a merchant and his customer, the remez meaning applies honesty and fairness in all areas of life. In many places throughout scripture, the subject may not be named or directly stated. In that case, it is hinting about the subject matter. This is the heart of what remez is. Many of the messianic scriptures foretelling the coming of Messiah Yeshua fall into that category. We next have drosh. This is the search for the meaning of the text in relation to the rest of scripture. In this method of interpretation, we search scripture for the allegorical, the typological, the homiletical application of the text itself. It may be necessary to search sources outside of scripture or from cultural life uh, itself to fulfill understanding or to fully understand the developed allegorical, typological, or homiletical application of the text. So we have rules that apply to utilizing the drosh level of understanding. A drosh understanding cannot be used to strip away the simple meaning, the peshat meaning of the, of the scripture, nor can any such understanding contradict the peshat level, the literal level, the simple level of the meaning of the text. Let scripture interpret scripture. Allow the scriptures themselves to define the components of an allegory. This is often included in the text itself. I want to give a few examples of this. Using Revelation 1 and verse 20 to understand Revelation 1 verses 12 through 16, or Revelation 17 verses 7 through 18 to understand Revelation chapter 17 verses 1 through 8. The primary components of an allegory represent specific realities, and we should limit ourselves to these pri- the primary components when understanding the text. I want to give a few examples that we find in the apostolic scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, that are examples of droshing. Matthew 2 verse 15 on Hosea 11 and verse 1 of Messiah leaving Egypt. Matthew 3 and verse 3 and verse 11 on Isaiah 40 and verse 3 regarding John the Baptist. Hebrews 8 verses 1 through 5 for understanding the priesthood. Hebrews 9 verse 9 and verse 24 for teaching on the tabernacle or the temple. Acts 28 verse 23, we find that the Apostle Paul is using the Hebrew scriptures to teach the Messiahship of Yeshua of Nazareth. 
He's using all of the scripture in order to bring out the truth of who Yeshua Jesus is. And finally, we have the sowed level or the secret, mysterious or hidden teaching of the text. And the rules for applying the sowed level of interpretation are similar to those that I've spoken about regarding Ramez and Drash. In the sowed level of interpretation, the reader examines the numbers, the jots, the tittles, as they're called, the meanings of letters, and even what is called within Judaism gematria or biblical numerology. Anyone who's considered the meaning of the number 666, and I think we can all think of someone, even ourselves, who have considered the number 666 found in Revelation 13 and verse 15, has investigated the sowed level of scripture. In other words, the hidden meaning, the secretive meaning, the meaning that isn't readily apparent. Examples of this from the book of Revelation are the dragon, understanding who the dragon is, and the whore of Babylon itself. Messiah Yeshua, Jesus said something very interesting in Matthew 13 and verse 52 concerning scribes who copied the Torah, who copied the law, who become disciples of the kingdom. He said, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. In the Hebrew text of the Torah, there are Numerous marks, enlarged or diminished letters, defective or changed spellings that cause the reader to pay special attention to a word or a verse, even a paragraph. A couple of examples of this. In Genesis 1 and verse 1, the very first letter of the Torah scroll is the letter Bet. In the word Bereshit, we find that this letter is enlarged. So the text, Bereshit Elohim et is saying in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there's a lot of speculation as to why that first bet, the first letter, is enlarged. Some say it's the Lord building his house, beginning to build his house, as the bet is a literally means house, and it's the picture of a cave. Some say it's a partnership. It's the because it's the number two, it would be partnerships between God and man, man and, and God, and man and woman. There's that idea. And then we have in Leviticus 1 and verse 1 the diminished Aleph, Vayikra el Moshe. The Lord called, recalled out to Moses the very last letter. Of Vayikra, and he called, is the diminished Aleph, which some speculate means that our strength and our ego must decrease as he increases. When we come to bring the Ola Karbanu, the sacrifice, the burnt offering, our ego is diminishing as we come before a holy God. A third example is found in Numbers chapter 10, verses 35 and 36, what is recalled the inverted and reversed noons, which rabbinic sources consider to be a separate book of the Bible entirely. You won't see this in your translations, but you'll see these in reproductions of the Torah scroll or in the Torah scroll in your congregation. And in some uh, printed editions, you'll see this as well these reversed and inverted noons, 
Lord Noon is a fish. It's a symbol of resurrection in this case. The bringing of life from the dead, the reversal of death, and so on, is being amplified in this. Rise up, O Lord. So each of these examples, these three examples that I gave, cause us to look closely at the verse, at the word, at the paragraph, or the verses that are there. Pay special attention to it. Meditate on it. Because the scribes are pointing out something to us in faith that is necessary for us to understand, grapple with, and integrate into our faith life and understanding of the text and the Bible itself. So in this very, very brief overview of the subject, we can see that if we take each of these methods, uh, the Peshat, the Drash, the Remez, the Sod, and look at them carefully, they don't unlock in really any sort of uh, new truth, but they help us to understand the truth that is there. So we're not departing from the text. We're not departing from the revealed Word of God. Rather, we're using these methods of searching and researching in order to more uh, clearly understand the revelation of God's Word. So we remember that the apostles are our faith, those who penned the New Testament scriptures, excluding Luke, who was more than likely Semitic, but uh, we don't believe he was a Jew. All of the apostles were Jews. They were raised within the historical synagogue. They were raised within that framework. Perhaps they didn't know this exact methodology, the methodology we've called Bardez. Perhaps they didn't know that specifically, but they certainly knew and understood the methods that went into creating this interpretive model. So friends, as we consider this today and we move on with our study in the introduction to the Torah, we can perhaps more fully appreciate mitzvah, halacha, mincha, prashat, ramez, drash, sod, and how we apply the word of God to our life and how we interpret it and rightly divide and handle it as we make our way in faith, as we walk with the Lord today. So I certainly hope and pray that you found something in this useful or at least enlightening to a different way of looking at scripture. It's not the only answer, it's not the only method, but it is one that certainly will tie into how we move forward in our study uh, in introduction to Torah. So friends, as you go about your day today, I hope and pray that you have a very, very blessed day. I thank you for listening to this point, up to this point in this long message today. And I pray that you will tune in once again as always, we have a lot of Torah to learn. So with that, I pray God's blessing upon you. May the Lord bless you and keep you in the name of Messiah, Jesus. Amen. Amen.